so glad you're here for worship today, guys, to uh, take a moment to put God first in your life. And um, yeah, God is so very honored with your presence and your attention today. So uh, let's uh, be joyful in that. Huh? So hey, uh, uh, just take a moment while you're standing. Say hi to somebody around you. We'll see you back in just a second. Thanks so much. Well, good morning again, everyone. I'm Sam. I'm one of the uh, pastors on staff here. We are just so excited that you have decided to join with us here on this uh, brisk October morning. It's a beautiful morning to be at church, and we are just expecting that God's going to do some awesome stuff. Right now, as we are gathered together in here, there is a group of us, of Hope Vailers over in the venue, um, doing a pre-launch service for Bay City, for Hope Vail Bay City. So that is so awesome. We're so excited for that. Um, And yeah... And we are just, you know, we're so excited of what God's going to do through that group as they get ready to, uh, to move into Bay City, um, God willing, in February. So, yeah, we're, our thoughts and prayers are with them as they are gathering together. One quick announcement here this morning. Um, next week, 
uh, daylight savings time ends. And so I, I always get confused. What, what do you do with your clock? Fall back. So you push the clock back an hour. So just remember that, just a, a little reminder. Um, if you don't, you're going to be really early to church next week, okay? So uh, some of you are like, okay, no problem. Uh, yeah, so just a, a reminder to uh, fall back next week with your clock and uh, daylight savings time ends. Well, we're going to move into a time of, of offering where we give back to God just a little bit of what he has blessed us with. Guys, he's, he's given us so much. He's blessed us with so much. And I think sometimes we forget that, but this is just a good time to remember that and to be reminded of, of how much he has blessed us with, and we can give back um, to him a portion of that, and he's going to use that to bless other people and to minister to other people. So as the ushers come forward, let's go to God in prayer this morning. God, we just thank you so much for who you are, and God, for um, just the ability to come here and to worship you and to praise you and to give you everything that we have. And so, God, maybe that's, that's tough for some of us. Maybe we've gone through, through some things this week that just have kind of made that difficult to do. And maybe for some of us, that's a really easy thing to do here today. But, God, wherever we're at, God, we just, maybe we could just pause for a second and say, we thank you, we love you, and we just want to offer something back to you as a, an act of worship. And so we do that with a joyful heart, with an expectant heart, knowing that, God, you're going to take whatever it is we give and you're going to use it, multiply it, and minister to people and change lives around the world. And so, God, we, we thank you for that. We, we love you in that, and we want to just give back just a little bit um, to you saying thank you. And, God, we know that you're going to do some amazing things with that. God, we just pray for, um, for our, our other friends over in the venue. God, we just pray that you would um, be working big time in that room as you work in here also. And, God, we just we can't wait for what you are going to do here today. In, your, in the, uh, the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Thanks, Sam. Hey, gang, my name's Billy. I'm one of the pastors here as well, so glad you're here to worship with us. Hey, uh, so we're in this series called Back to Basics that Pastor Dan, our senior pastor, has us walking through, and today is, uh, today's sermon is Grace Alone. It'll be a powerful one. And uh, so these, this uh, series really comes from uh, Martin Luther, if you're just joining us. Martin Luther was really sort of the, the, really the key institutor of the, the Great Reformation 500 years ago, so that's what we're celebrating why we're doing this um, uh, sermon series. Well, Martin Luther had this quote. He said this. He said, I must listen to the gospel. It tells me not what I must do, but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has done for me. It's short. I'll read it again. I must listen to the gospel. It tells me not what I must do, but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has done for me. And uh, I think in our worship, I think that's really all that God is looking for, gang. He's looking for us to say, thank you, Lord, for what you've done for me. And it's not you know, what I do, to my works or my things that I can earn, that we can earn God's grace. It's this free gift. And uh, so we can rest in that today and just respond in that today. That's all God's looking for. He's just looking for a heart that's willing to respond and say, thank you so much. So, um, so let's continue to say thank you so much. Let's continue to offer our prayers. Let's continue to say, God, I need you in my life. I need you uh, to direct me. I need you to guide my path. If I'm going to do any of this thing in life, God, I need you to walk with me. So um, stay seated for just a few moments while the offering's being uh, finished, and we'll get you up uh, in just a minute. Gary's going to lead us in this next one. Take us in, Mike. Grace is found 
That's the heart of the believer that says, God, I need you. That's the heart of the person that's on the fence that's saying, God, I don't even know if you're there, but if you are, I really need you right now. So God, would you speak to hearts, um, unbelieving hearts, on the fence hearts, and believing hearts today? Would today be a day where your grace is just enough? Where we're reminded of all you've done and all you've created, and that's just enough for us? So help us to have that kind of childlike faith that says, that's enough. You are enough. And there's a million questions we'll have that won't get answered this side of heaven, but help us to know what, help us to know for sure what you've done. And so as we honor you in this time in remembering what you've done for us on the cross, speak, Lord, today we pray in your name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat as we prepare for communion. Pastor Sam. Now this week I was uh, I was looking over the lyrics of that song and just taking some time to reflect over it and uh, and it just kind of struck me I, I love the words of that song but one phrase in it just the beginning of the chorus it said Lord I need you every hour I need you and I, I just had to ask myself this big question as I reflected over it and that question was how many times in my week do I pause and think about Lord I need you every hour. Or do I just kind of, uh, see, I, I know that intellectually, right? We know that, God, I need you, Lord, I need you. But, but do, we, do I live that way? That was my question. Do I actually live dependent every hour on the fact that I need God? Or is it only in those special times, specific times, those moments where, you know, the bottom falls out or the, the Sundays or those kind of things? And, and so I just, I started asking myself that question and and sometimes we need those pause moments in our life, right, where we, we stop and we ask ourselves the big question and we need to be reminded of how much we actually need Jesus in our life. That my every day and my every hour is about Jesus. That without him, I can't move forward. I can't do life the way God intended it to be. And so I just, I wanted to kind of put that out there for us today. How much how much time do we actually spend thinking about how much we need Jesus in our life every hour, moment by moment, day by day? And I think communion, as we're going to step into right now, is, is one of those moments that's just a great pause in our life. And it's a great moment to be reminded of how much we need Jesus. Because it's that, that time where we come face to face with our own humanity, with our own reality, that without Jesus, life doesn't work that life doesn't make sense, that, that eternity doesn't work, and that, that I can't face life the way I'm supposed to without Jesus, without the cross. And so as we approach the table of communion today, as we, as we hold the, the bread, which represents the body of Jesus, as we, we hold the cup and drink the cup, which represents his blood, may we be reminded of our need for Jesus hour by hour, day by day. And so communion is it's just a special time around here that we love to, to partake in one, one day a month um, where we can gather together as a church family and be reminded of Jesus and his death on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. And what a beautiful picture 
that is. And so we say at Hopevale here, we say that uh, we want everyone who is a follower of Jesus to participate uh, in that. Um, we don't say that you have to be a member. Um, we don't even say you have to be a regular tender. We just say if you are here and you would um, claim to be a follower of Jesus, that Jesus has done something in your life so radically, you say, I'm going to follow him for the rest of my life. And I understand what the cross means for me, that we say, come, partake, be, be a part of this. But we would also say that if you're here this morning and, and you wouldn't define yourself that way, that, that if that's not a reality for you in this moment, then we would just ask that as the elements are passed by, that you would just let them pass by. And we ask that not to single you out, um, not to, to shame you in any way or whatever. We would just ask that out of respect for a couple reasons, out of respect for what we're doing here and the significance that it holds for those of us who are followers of Jesus, but also out of respect for yourself because we wouldn't want you to participate in something that would just be this empty ritual, that would just be this thing that you did and you don't know why and it had no meaning for you. Um, because we're not about that here. We're not about doing empty rituals. We're about following Jesus and knowing him personally, and, and this is a very personal thing for us. And so if that's your reality here, you would not claim to be a follower of Jesus. We would just ask you to respectfully let those elements pass by. But we would ask you to consider a question, and that question is, who is Jesus to you personally? What does the cross of Jesus mean to you? That, that last song, Lord, I need you, as Billy talked about what does that mean for you in your life? And what could it mean for you? There have been many times in moments like these where people have come to the cross of Jesus and accepted his forgiveness for their sins because of this moment of communion and reflection. So ask yourself, what, is, what does that mean? If you have small children here with you um, today and if you're a parent uh, of those, those children, if they're ready and, uh, and you know they're ready, uh, we would love for them to participate with us, but we want you to use your parental discretion on that. Um, and if they're not, this would be a great teaching opportunity for you uh, to do that. So as we get ready to, um, to take uh, the body, to eat the bread, would you go, uh, go with me to, uh, into prayer as the ushers come forward? God, I just uh, I thank you for um, just everything that you have done through the cross of Jesus Christ and the significance of it. God, I know I need to be reminded over and over again how much I need the cross of Jesus in my life and the resurrection of Jesus, even for the, the minute-by-minute, hour-by-hour moments of my life. And God, this is a moment where we can be reminded of that and remember that. Your body broken for us. And God, may we never take that for granted. And God, we, we want to say thank you and that we love you for the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was gathered together in the upper room with his disciples and they were eating the Passover meal and he took the bread and he broke it and he handed it out to them and he said, do this, as long as you eat this, eat this in remembrance of me. pray for the cup. Jesus, we, we come this morning and we think of the blood that you shed on the cross, the forgiveness of sins that it offers, and we don't take that lightly, the sacrifice that was made. And so Jesus, we just want to humbly say thank you, realizing how much we need you. Jesus, I, I, I don't know sometimes the words to speak, to say how much I'm grateful and thankful for what you did on that cross. But I know sometimes the best thing to do is just to come humbly, quietly, and just say thank you, and we remember you, and we love you because of it. In Jesus' name. worship together as we hold the cup in our hand be reminded of what Jesus has done for us
That same night as they were gathered together, Jesus took the cup and he, he told them, he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. God, we, we thank you for this chance where we can come and remember the cross of Jesus Christ and the grace that you gave us. May we never look at it casually, but may it always cause us to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. You can go ahead and grab a seat. Thank you. morning, everyone. Well, wonderful day of worship. want to welcome those of you in the venue as well who are worshiping with us. Your second week, one church, two locations, and it's so exciting. Last week, we had around 150 worshiping the venue, and just look around. Where would we have put 150 in here, right? So God is growing our church we're excited and so glad that you guys are on board. I want to begin this morning's message with a series of do you believe questions, okay? Do you believe? And while I'm going to ask these publicly, I want you to answer them privately, right? No show of hands, nothing like that. These are just personal questions. So here's the first one. Do you believe there is a God? Do you believe there is a God? Now, I, I know that feels like a loaded question to ask in church, but I don't want it to be. Now, the fact that you're here might tip your answer. After all, there are plenty of other things that we could do on a Sunday morning with our time. But maybe you're here because you're not quite sure, right? Or maybe you're here because there was a time that you believed in God, but something tragic, something unexpected happened. It rocked your world, and now you're working your way back to some kind of spiritual belief. So you're trying to make sense of everything that's going on around you. But then again, some of you here, you're a yes. As a matter of fact, as far as you can remember, you've always been a yes. But that's the funny thing about this question. Two answers, yes, no, I, maybe there's a I'm not sure. Just a couple of answers, but there are hundreds of stories represented among you, right? Do you believe there is a God. Here's the second question. If, if you do believe, then do you believe this God is personal? Do you believe this God is personal? Now, for some of you, we just lump those two together, right? We don't make any kind of distinction. But the second question is different than the first one, because some people believe in God in the sense of this impersonal force, force who just, you know, governs our fates. Or Others see God as this almighty being who exists, but he's distant, he's uninvolved in our day-to-day -day affairs. So yes, you believe in God, but how can he be personal, right, when there's so much suffering on this planet? There's so many bad things happening to genuinely nice people. So do you believe in God, and do you believe this God is personal? Two of the most important questions, I think, that every one of us needs to work through. Now, I know I'm a pastor, and you expect me to say that. But I know there are many of you here who would say the exact same thing, even though you're not pastors, because these are two huge questions that people across the centuries and every kind of culture have asked themselves, right? Do you believe there is a God, and do you believe this God is personal? And so if you've answered yes to those first two questions, I've got one more do you believe question for you. Here it is. What do you believe this personal God thinks of you? What do you believe this personal God thinks of you? Now, I'm going to let that question hang out there for a moment. I'm going to let it sink in a little bit. And the reason I want to do that is a question like this crosses a line that is very personal and emotional. It does. I mean, let's take God out of this question for a moment. Let's substitute the name of someone who is close to you. What does your mother or your father think of you? What does your best friend think of you? 
What does your boss think of you? What does your coach think of you? If you're married, what does your spouse think of you? If you're a parent, what does your child or what do your children think of you? See, most of our greatest joys, along with our most devastating heartaches, come from our answers to these two questions. I think of numerous pastoral counseling situations I've had through the years with people and how the words of a parent years ago can still help or still haunt a grown adult decades later, wrestling with questions like, was I loved or was I loathed? From, my mom made me feel like I could do anything, to I felt like I could never quite measure up to my dad's expectations. What someone thinks of us, or, or should I say what we believe someone thinks of us, strikes to the very core of who we are as, pe- are, as people, and it can literally affect everything about us our feelings, our choices, our direction in life. And if that's how it works on a human level, imagine how it impacts us on a spiritual level and what we believe this personal God thinks of us. What do you believe this personal God thinks of you? And so today, I want us to explore this third question further, what we believe this personal God thinks of us. And I want to do it in the context of the series we started a couple weeks ago. It's entitled Back to Basics. Back to Basics. It's a series about the essentials of the Christian faith and the importance of us staying true to what matters most. Now, it's interesting to think about in light of that just us finishing communion as part of our service, right? This act of worship where we encounter Jesus, where we remember the eternal significance of his death on the cross. You know, Christians have been observing communion for the last 2,000 years, goes all the way back to the time of the apostles, that Jesus instituted this new covenant practice as a way for his followers to keep the main thing the main thing. Now, this Back to Basics series is sparked by the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation, this pivotal time when on October 31st, 1517, so just a couple days away, will mark 500 years. A German priest by the name of Martin Luther addressed a huge discrepancy he saw between the liberating truths of Scripture versus the superstitious teachings of the church. And he did so by posting what's known as the 95 Theses, or protests, on the front door of the All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany. This was his way to both protest, but also to try to reform all the injustices and inconsistencies he saw with church teaching, church doctrine, and church leaders. Now, like I said last week, Martin Luther was an anti-church, and he wasn't anti-tradition either. No, he saw these things as necessities in the life of a Christian. So he's not some anarchist who is trying to burn everything to the ground. No, he just wanted the church to return to its scriptural roots where the central focus would be on Jesus Christ and the eternal life, the everlasting love that he offers to everyone through simple belief in him. Unfortunately, the church didn't see it that way. And so Martin Luther and these other reformers, they squelched, they were silenced by all means necessary, labeled as heretics and troublemakers, and yet they didn't back down. They pressed on with courage and conviction to help bring Christianity back to basics, back to basics no matter the cost. And so last week, I introduced you to the five basics of the Protestant Reformation. They're known as the five solas, taken from the Latin word sola, meaning alone or only. So instead of how complicated, convoluted, and contorted Christianity had become back then, these were five simple statements that hold true for every generation, right? Every generation from the apostles 2,000 years ago, from Martin Luther and the reformers of 500 years ago, to us here today in 2017. So here they are. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. Sola Gratia, grace alone. Sola Fide, faith alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone, and soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. These things and nothing else, or no one else, they make up the essentials of our faith. So last week we looked at the first of these five, sola scriptura, scripture alone, that the Bible is our highest authority. And we saw how that impacts our lives in a couple very direct ways. That first of all, that the Bible should have authority over all 
over everything, that whenever there's a conflict exists, the Bible is greater than the words of church leaders and church doctrines and church traditions. That's what Luther and the other reformers pushed. And then second, that the Bible, there should be access for all, right? Access for all. That unlike the tone of Christianity 500 years ago before the Reformation, when the scriptures were to be only read by a select few, Luther and others brought us back to basics. They heralded this message that the Bible can and should be read by everyone. Everyone, including common folk like us today, right? And so because of these two impacts, I encouraged us to do these four things when it comes to the Bible. Here they are. Read it for yourself. Discuss it with others. Learn it over time. And then obey it in everything, right? Read, discuss, learn, obey. And I trust that this past week you took one of these four and pursued it further as you sought to know God more through his word. Well, this week we're going to move on to the second of the five basics or the five solas of the Protestant Reformation, and that's this, sola gratia, grace alone, that we are saved by the grace of God alone. All right? We are saved by the grace of God alone. Now, I got to admit that if you have the ear of an outsider, this can sound pretty churchy or religious-y. You know, the word saved can conjure up these images of an old-time southern gospel preacher who just yells a lot and points his finger at people, right? Saved. And then there's this word grace, right? Christians throw it around all the time like everyone's supposed to know what it means. But deep down, some of us are like, I don't know what they're talking about. I know this whole saying grace before a meal, but I don't see any food around here, and they're still talking about grace, right? So what is going on? So what does it mean, and why is this basic of grace alone so important? Well, to answer those questions, let's go back to the question I asked at the beginning, that third of three opening questions. What do you believe this personal God thinks of you? Well, believe it or not, the answer to that question lies in the two words that I just brought up to you, grace and saved. Grace and save, because if, if you can really understand up here what those two words mean, but also grasp them in here, I truly believe that you're going to find what your heart has been searching for, and that whatever uncertainty you had before about what this God thinks of you is suddenly going to become crystal clear. Crystal clear. So let's go ahead and explore that further, and to do so, I want us to go back 500 years ago. Now, I don't know this for sure, because I wasn't alive back then, right? But based on what history tells us, that if you ask the average person back in the early 1500s, what do you believe God thinks of you? I think the answer would have been pretty negative. I really do. See, the church back then emphasized the great chasm that exists between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of humanity. This great chasm. Churchgoers were well aware of how much and how often they failed to keep God's laws and failed to measure up to his righteous standards. And so religious practices like confession and penance and acts of contrition were a huge part of a Christian's experience back then. We saw this with Martin Luther, who before his awakening was plagued constantly by a haunting fear of a holy God and a paralyzing shame over his own sin and failures. That's why people were also susceptible to buying indulgences right from the church. Because they were frequently threatened with these visions of hell and purgatory. And so for the most part, this was pre-Reformation Christianity. People were terrified of God. That God is this stern taskmaster who relishes in our failures, who looks forward to our punishment. And I say that's the way things were back then. But I wouldn't be surprised if that was or still is the picture that some of you have here today of God. Maybe it came from your church upbringing. Maybe it came from having stern parents. Maybe it came from the sensitivity of your conscience. I don't know, but whatever the era, this dark, depressing, despairing view of what God thinks of you does not represent grace alone. And yet here we are today, 500 years later, and it seems like the pendulum has swung completely to the opposite side where our picture of God now is just one of great love and delight over who we are regardless of our beliefs and behaviors. And so we've gone from how could God possibly love me to how could he not? What's there not to like, right? 
See, I might not always get it right, but on the whole, I'm a pretty good person, especially compared to a lot of the people I know, right? I am glad that I'm on God's team, and I'm pretty sure he feels the same way too, right? You know what? This optimistic blue sky not grounded in reality, God must be pleased with me view, also doesn't represent grace alone. So what does? What does? Well, the answer is much more complicated than either one of these. So to get to the heart of grace alone, we need to look at Scripture alone. Scripture alone, the Bible, and take God at his word. Why? So we can better understand these two key words, grace and saved, right? Now, there are numerous places we could turn to in the Bible, but there's one passage in particular that sums it up very well for us, Ephesians chapter 2. The punchline, so to speak, comes in verses 8 and 9, and we'll get to that a little bit. But for some context, let's start at the beginning of the chapter. It's the New Testament book of Ephesians, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And so the Apostle Paul is writing to a group of first century Christians. He's writing words that are just as applicable to us today. Verse 1 says this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live, When you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. This is Paul speaking to a group of people who at this point in their lives are genuine Christians, but Paul reminds them of their past, of the way things used to be, right? Hey, remember, he says, you weren't always this way. No, back in the day, before you knew Jesus, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Dead. Not morally neutral, not kind of bad, but dead, that there was absolutely no spiritual life, spiritual goodness in you whatsoever. Instead, you followed this me-first, anti-God influence that's part of both the seen and unseen worlds. That's what he's talking about. Now, talk about a depressing picture of reality, right? And it gets worse. Verse 3, Paul goes on, and all of us also lived among them at one time gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. In other words, we all have this incredibly selfish, I'm going to do what I want to do when I want to do it kind of mindset that plays out in our real-life choices and behaviors. And even with the best among us, there's not a single person here who's completely cured of that. And so to believe that this has never been a part of the kind of people of who we were or are is sheer denial. Now look at the end of this verse. Like the rest, we were, and Paul includes himself, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Deserving of wrath. Now I I have to um, swallow a little bit on that because those are pretty intense words. Like everyone else, Paul says, if we were to look at our own moral resume of our attitudes and our actions towards God, towards others, and we measured that against the standard of his perfect righteousness, left to ourselves, we are deserving of wrath of God's wrath, deserving of God's wrath. What is God's wrath? God's wrath is his righteous anger flowing from perfect justice. And it's directed towards anything that is contrary to God's goodness, anything that is harmful to others, anything that violates what Jesus says is the greatest commandment to love God with everything we've got and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Wrath resulting in judgment. I'm just going to be brutally honest with you. That if we stop right here at verse 3, I think we would have to conclude that this negative, depressing, what does this personal God think of me mindset from 500 years ago, that that aligns much more with this passage than the overly optimistic, everything's good with me kind of attitude we find in a lot of religion today. Don't you think that that if we're going to be these scripture-alone kind of people, then you just can't ignore harsh but truthful passages like this one. You can't. See, the church back in the Middle Ages, it wasn't entirely incorrect. The terror of facing God's wrath, the reality of hell, should frighten everyone. It should. No, the church wasn't entirely incorrect back then, but they were woefully incomplete, right? Woefully incomplete, and this is where the grace of God steps in, verse 4. But... Yes, this was your reality, but, verse 4, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. Here you go. It is by grace you have been saved. 
It is by grace you have been saved. Those are the two words, grace and saved. So what exactly is grace? How would you define it? Well, it's described right there at the beginning. What's grace? Grace is God's great love for us. God's great love for us. And like any kind of great love, Ephesians 2 tells us that God's love for us is not a because of kind of love, but it's a in spite of kind of love. Do you know the difference? Not a because of kind of love, but an in spite of kind of love. A because of kind of love is I do these things for you so you love me back. And in spite of love is despite of what you've done towards me, I still love you and I'm going to love you, and I'm going to pursue you. Right? That's what's talked about. In spite of everything that is true of us, verse 1 to 3, in our anti-God dispositions, we who are Christians have been made spiritually alive in Christ, even though on our own we were dead in our sins and transgressions. See, that's where the saved part comes in. Saved. Now let me give you a tip. Whenever you hear the word saved, the first question that should come to your mind is this, save from what? Save from what? So a lifeguard saves a struggling swimmer from what? From drowning. I mean, picture all those images of the recent hurricanes, right, where you had these volunteer boaters rescuing residents from their flooded homes. They were saving helpless victims. And so it is with all of humanity. Jesus took our sins, bore them on the cross. That's what we celebrated in communion. So that in his resurrection... We who were spiritually dead could be made alive with him, for it is by grace you have been saved. And Paul goes on, verse 6. And God raised us up with Christ and seated him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. You want another definition definition of grace? There it is, right at the end. God's kindness expressed to us in his Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. God's kindness expressed to us. And God did that to show for all eternity the incomparable riches of his grace, that there is nothing greater, nothing more valuable than what we just celebrated in communion, the perfect life, the sacrificial death, the victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ as an outpouring of God's amazing grace. That's why this acrostic, maybe some of you have seen this before, does a good job at explaining grace, that grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches for us, his incomparable riches, his infinite kindness poured out upon us through Jesus and his life, his death, his resurrection, all on our behalf. So going back to the time of the Reformation, this was the missing piece that needed to be rediscovered. People had a good handle on the helpless plight of their spiritual desperation. They understood that they hadn't done enough to please God, but instead of their leaders pointing them to grace, they sold them indulgences. They told them that they had to try harder and live better. Right diagnosis, wrong remedy. On the other hand, so many today, we just want to skip over these first three verses and pretend they don't exist. All that talk about being spiritually dead or objects of wrath, it's too old-fashioned, it's too degrading, it's too depressing. No, they see grace as something we deserve because there's some likable quality in us that overrides everything else, right? That has to do with our faults and our failures. But here's the thing, that if you really want to understand what this personal God thinks of you, then grace and save, they have to go together. They have to go together. You can't have one without the other. You can't understand God's gift of grace if you ignore your need to be saved. And so to sum it all up, Paul gives us this picture, this punchline, verse 8, verse 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Actually, let's say that together. I'm including you in the venue. Here we go. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. And so in verse 4, we saw grace described as God's great love for us. Verse 7, we saw it described as God's kindness expressed to us in Jesus. And right here in verse 9, it's simply described as the gift of God, right? The gift of God, that grace is a free gift with no strings attached that God offers to all of us. 
All, every one of you watching this, God offers his grace. And grace, like any gift, is then, isn't something you, you know, earn as a payback. It isn't something you work towards through your righteous living and your religious penance. No, grace is simply a gift. A gift. But if you're going to experience a gift, it has to be received and open. And the way we do that, Paul says here, is by what? By faith. Or by, as we've seen throughout this series, simple belief. Simple belief believe. God offers us his grace because we need to be saved. See, God in his grace isn't taking good people and making them better. No, he's taking spiritually dead people like us, those objects of his deserving wrath, and he's making us come alive in Christ. Do you realize how dramatic that is? And the greater the desperation, the stronger the appreciation The greater we feel our desperation apart from Jesus, the stronger we will appreciate grace. Grace and save, they need to go together. And when you truly grasp both of them, you're going to be blown away by the great love that God has for you. Sola gratia, grace alone. We are saved by the grace of God alone and nothing else. And so when you take this notion of what a personal God thinks of you, We reflect upon these two words, grace and save. There's really only one of three ways you can respond. And so as I go through these, I want you to be honest with yourself. I want you to think which one of these best describes where I'm at today. Here's the first. I can't do it. I can't do it. This is someone who knows they need to be saved, but they try to do it without grace. This is the pre-Reformation mindset we talked about earlier, but it's a mindset that is still alive in many people today, and maybe that's you. You know you have a need to be rescued from your desperation before God, but you know what? You try your own to save yourself. This is works-based religion at its finest. You're well aware that you have offended a holy God, that you've hurt other people through your own sin and selfishness, but your solution is to try harder, to live better. But experience tells us that only produces this endless cycle of frustration because on your own, you're never going to quite get it right. You won't. None of us will. That is the bondage of works-based religion where we're either unaware of grace or maybe, you know what, we're too stubborn, we're too prideful to receive it. Grace feels like weakness. Grace feels like charity. Listen, don't let your pride... Don't let your strong will, hard-hearted, hard-headed stubbornness get in the way of receiving the cure of God's grace. For it is by grace and not your effort that you are saved through faith. I can't do it. That's the first response. Here's the second. I don't need it. I don't need it. This is a person who doesn't see their need to be saved. And maybe that's where you're at. You read those first three verses in Ephesians 2 and you think, well, that's not talking about me. You're not spiritually dead. You're not an object of God's wrath. Maybe you're like a lot of people today who say, my God isn't a God of wrath. My God isn't a God of anger. No, my God is a God of love. My God is a God of grace. Listen, in the end, we're all responsible for our own beliefs, right? But don't fall into the trap of picking and choosing Bible verses You know, the ones you like, but disregarding the ones you don't. Now, is God a God of grace? Most definitely. But he's not just a God of grace. He's also a God of wrath. You know why? Because he's a God who is perfectly holy and absolutely just. And that, too, makes him worthy of our worship. And so if I can't do it as a place of desperation, then I don't need it as a place of denial. And both of these places are equally dangerous. Which leads us then to this third response, I must have it. I must have it. This is where the idea of being saved and needing grace come together. This is the person who knows they need to be saved, but instead of trying on their own, they look to God's grace to save them. I must have it. I must have it because I'm humble enough, I'm honest enough to admit that I have a need for a Savior because I cannot save myself, that my good works won't cut it. No, I need the grace of God that's offered to me through Jesus Christ, through his perfect life, through his sacrificial death, through his victorious resurrection. That confession right there, by the way, is as basic as Christianity gets. Jesus, right at the center, 
waiting for us to receive, to experience His amazing grace. And so listen, if you're in one of those first two categories, I invite you to this third one. This is what today's been all about. This is as basic as Christianity gets. This is why Jesus gave us communion, to bring us back to the basics, to say it's about a Savior who loves you and died in your place. For some of you, I invite you back to this third one. Maybe there was a time in your life when you thought you needed it, and you've drifted away from that. You need it. You need it. You need it. I must have your grace. And for those of us who are already there, I just pray that you'd thank God today. I pray that God would give your heart a fresh joy and gratitude. You know why? Because Paul would say, for it is still by grace that you are saved. Nothing changes. You're just as needy, just as desperate for the grace of God as the hour that you first believed. Because there is a God. And this God is personal. And you know what this God thinks of us? He loves us so much that he went to the greatest lengths possible by giving us his son, Jesus, to save us from spiritual death, to make us alive in Christ both now and forevermore. That's why we proudly say, with all who have gone before us, we are saved by the grace of God alone. Let's pray together. And as I pray for us, I just want to ask, I just want to pray for those of you who, um, who need to experience God's grace. For some of you, this is the first time you recognize your need for a Savior and you realize that Jesus is that Savior. May today be the day that you let go of your works, that you let go of your guilt, and you cross the line of faith by trusting in Jesus. For others of us, the prayer is simply, Lord, renew my heart. Make me grateful once again, right? All of us today can respond to the grace of God and grace of lo- alone. So Lord, that's our prayer. That's our prayer. Thank you for reminding us of the gift of your great grace through the act of communion, through the songs we've been singing and through your word and the words of the Apostle Paul. Father, I would ask for those today who are crossing the line of faith and trusting in Jesus Christ as their Savior, that they would open up their heart and step forward and say, Jesus, I need you. I need your grace. Be my Savior. For others of us, we're coming back to you, Jesus, or we're just saying thank you once again, and so we're praying that your Spirit would revive our hearts. God, because your grace is amazing. Your grace is all that we need. And so we say thank you. We say we love you. And we say we love you because we know that you have first and always forever loved us. Through your Son, our Savior, Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. Let's stand together and respond in worship. Let's worship together with this amazing grace. All right, gang? the power of sin and darkness whose love is mighty and so much stronger the king of glory the king above all
King who conquered the grave for you. Amen? Amen. Amen. Next week, we will continue our Back to Basics series. We'll talk about the power of faith alone. But as you go from here, may you be bathed in God's amazing grace for you. God bless you.